Ghouls. Happy Hump Day and welcome to Ghoul Friends Podcast, brought to you by your best ghoul friends, Lucy and Lindsay. Grab your blankets, snacks and good vibes for tonight's sleepover, where the category is always horrifically spooky. If you want to keep up with us on the socials, you can find us on Twitter and Instagram at GhoulFriendPod on Twitter and GhoulFriends underscore podcast on Instagram. You can also listen to us on all podcasting platforms where we release new episodes every Wednesday. And if you want to follow me on my personal socials, you can find me on Twitter and Twitch at Lulu underscore Pew. And I'm at Hi It's Lindsay underscore on all social media. Now let's get spooky. Hey girls, it's Lindsay and welcome to another episode of Girlfriends as well, I was going to say as always, but it hasn't really been as of late. But I am joined by my best girl, Lucy. How are you doing? Attacked, first of all. <laughs> but also fair, as we said last time, folks, I promise we're not in an internet fight. We do love each other. <laughs> it's just been schedules and stuff. You had a lot of stuff on, I've had a lot of stuff on, but we're back in it now, back in the swing of things. And yeah, I'm I'm doing good. Yeah, you'll have our dulcet tones every single week for 10 weeks. Um, because after today we'll be getting into Dragula. Yeah. Oh, it'll I actually can't be wait. eleven weeks, but no, it will be ten weeks. But yeah, I can't fucking wait. Um oh. but a little bit more on that at the end of the show. Um, because tonight we are talking about horror in the workplace. Uh, fun fact about me, I fucking hate working. So <laughs> when I saw this on our list of themes and we had this like extra week between like all the amazing stuff we've done previously and Dragula coming up, I was like, I'm picking this theme and I knew exactly what film I was going to pick. Um, Lucy, it was actually you who came up with this theme. So what kind of made you think about horror in the workplace? Well, I mean, working in an office is horrific enough as it fucking is, let's be honest. <laughs> yes, it really is. <laughs> I mean, you and me both work nine to five and like, I just thought it'd be a really interesting concept because there is like horror in workplaces, but you never think of that as like a scene for mm. horrors. And like, it was interesting looking at what movies to pick because there is a few, but it's not like, it's not an obvious choice. But yeah, you know, we say that, some of the most scary things are horror that's in real life and what's more awful and horrific than being at a desk for eight hours a day with people that you don't really like. Yeah, I feel like in both of these films, it's like that internal rage that you feel on sometimes a daily basis, depending on how your colleagues are, that is just like coming out and they have an excuse to bring it out and they just let it all out. You know, we all have that person who just like doesn't know how to read an email properly or who's just really willfully ignorant or willfully just like tries to butt heads with people and you just maybe want to just hit them with the, the axe in the face um, numerous times. But obviously in the real world, you can't do that. So you can kind of let that side of yourself out in these horror films exactly and also like people that microwave fish in the office they deserve jail axe to the fucking head straight away (laughs) 
that is like the number one rule like don't microwave fish in an office that's disgusting it stinks out the whole bloody building selfish it's like that and like eating crisps or apples at your desk i'm sorry but i will give you daggers the entire fucking day i suppose they are quite noisy aren't they yeah i it was actually funny yesterday i was in the office because of like i'm still doing hybrid working i know some people are still like in the office not in the office all that kind of stuff and i really i honestly need to hone in my resting bitch face because (laughs) on teams calls i don't have my camera on so Mm -hmm. i can huff and puff and roll my eyes as much as I like and I had like a really shitty meeting yesterday with my boss's boss and I was just eye rolling in front of her and I was like I really need to I really need to not fucking do that I completely forgot I was like people can see you Lucy like calm down yeah like we're doing hybrid working as well but I feel like I've had a very like interrupted week this week due to like tech issues and other organizational issues and a lot of people are going into the office tomorrow and I'm just like no I really just need a normal day at home I want to wear my pajama bottoms I don't want to get dressed up for the office again this week I'm really sorry I'd stay at home (laughs) one more tangent because this is tangent galore this is going to be like I I feel like this whole episode four hours yeah who who the fuck like who are these people that really dress up for the office they make it an event it's like their weekly thing Mm. and I'm like if I brush my hair and do my eyebrows for work that is an effort like you were you were being graced with my presence (laughs) like that is enough (laughs) I'm the same like we've recently changed office buildings and at the old building I was like jeans and a t-shirt jeans and a jumper I kind of I'll put on a dress now but it's still very casual um I love dresses for the office because I'm quite lazy and you can just throw a dress on and Mm -hmm. pair it with a black cardigan and that's you ready and you look somewhat presentable I think it's bloody great because I like you know sometimes don't even brush my hair (laughs) to go into the office I don't wear makeup so I'm like a dress and a cardigan somewhat smart looking great Lindsay so yeah I love it love that for you (laughs) Uh, so we're buttering on about our uh, boring lives in the office <laughs> we're not even told you what bloody films we're talking about yet. Uh, <laughs> so this week we are going to be looking at American Psycho and the Belco experiment so definitely looking at that kind of office rage that you feel definitely when I was like taking a look at American Psycho today there's so many different ways you can look at that film but that kind of having to deal with people you don't fucking like and the kind of competitiveness that there can be in the office as well, very much you can f- see the rage like building inside Patrick Bateman as he tries to you know, eke himself above these um, other similarly unremarkable white men in designer suits. Um, yeah, and then in the Belco experiment, I just feel like it's a lot of those like underlying tensions in the office just like kind of spilling over and particularly with like one death this person who's been harassed harassed so much you're just like you know she's dreamt of doing that for a really long time and then she can just finally let it out and people showing who they really are I feel like sometimes there's a bit of a persona in the office you have your work self and your home self 
And like, there's loads of theories about people having many different personas for all aspects of their life, but very much you have like your work self and your and your home self. Yeah, definitely. I mean, I I have that. I mean, you kind of have to in the industry that I work in as well, in like academia, because I'm definitely not professional at home. But in the workplace, you know, you have to put on a little bit of ma- of a mask, and especially if like. You know, it'll be interesting to speak about with American Psycho as well, like the neurodivergent tendencies of like Patrick Bateman as well, because of there's a lot of it's it's not confirmed, so I can I can't say for sure, but you know, there's a lot of theories that he um suffers with like autism, but also like multiple personality disorder, OCD, all these different things, and being neurodivergent and masking as well in the workplace is another big thing too. Um See, so, yeah, I can feel that. I I I feel that there, there's this like meme of, um, I've seen a few times where it's like when you come home from a long day at work and it's somebody like undoing like their human mask. It's a devil inside, and I'm like, that's me. I relate to that. <laughs> I'm kind of like I'm not very good at kind of having professional Lindsay and like home Lindsay. I don't know, like, cause I I just hate the whole like wanky corporate talk like Mm -hmm. oh let's circle back to this and and like it it doesn't mean anything and sometimes you know you can make whole sentences out of this like spiel that people say in the workplace all the time and what it really means is like we're never gonna look at that ever again um but you know what I mean and I like I struggle with that a lot because I'm quite a straightforward person um like we kind of spoke a few times I feel like I'm probably definitely on the neurodivergent spectrum somewhere um and that kind of lack of like transparency and stuff sometimes in like corporate talk I really really struggle with because I like the way I talk to other people it's just like the way I talk at work and it, like, it's kind of how I talk on the phone as well like definitely in my job there's a lot of like customer service and stuff so kind of being a bit more personal does work in my favor that little mm-hmm. bit but yeah I don't even I do struggle to like mask my true self at work because I'm just like take me as I am or fuck off more people should be like that though and should just not feel the need to do that I wish I could um but I don't know when when I get in work because I mean I love what I do I complain about it a lot but I love my job and I love my career but like I, I I don't know I definitely have personas for different things I think masking is definitely a thing I do a lot in general and it's a bit of a habit mm. but I totally get what you mean because you know especially for people that maybe have social anxiety or communicate in different ways like beating around the bush and like using like different lingo like hive mind is the worst one I fucking oh, hate yeah. that it's it's not accessible for a lot of people and especially as well for like people with ADHD too and like working patterns and like you know a lot of corporate offices and organizations don't really cater for anybody that is isn't neurotypical yeah like a team meeting is like my idea of hell um my like specific small team like fine like they're not always the best sometimes I'd like wander off in the head and I'll come back if I feel like it's important (laughs) (laughs) but like the wider team meetings and just like someone please dig me a hole for me to crawl into because 
I just want to rip my skin off because this is just so fucking awkward. I don't know anybody here. I don't know what anyone's talking about. You know, and you know, it's hard to absorb. And especially when they're talking in that fucking corporate doublespeak. I'm just like, I don't know what you're fucking saying. Like, just talk, speak English. Like, speak normal. <laughs> So that's a little rant about the workplace over. Like, I don't know if anybody else feels like that, but it really fucking bothers me. And a lot of people close to me work in care, so it's a little bit different. And it's interesting Mm -hmm. for us to talk about the differences in how they're managed and how the organizations are run and stuff like that. But yeah, it's something that gets on my bloody wick about these places. Um, So yeah, I found watching these films quite cathartic. But anyway, enough ranting. (laughs) (laughs) Let's get into our uh, first film of our spooky sleepover, which is American Psycho. Uh, Lucy, can you take it away, please? Yes, will do. So the IMBD plot for American Psycho is as follows. A wealthy New York City investment banking executive, Patrick Bateman, hides his alternative psychopathic ego from his co-workers and friends as he delves deeper into his violent hedonistic fantasies. This was released in the year 2000 um, and the cast includes Christian Bale, Justin Theroux, Josh Lucas, also has people like Willem Dafoe, it's got Reese Witherspoon, it's got a massive fucking cast of like, I mean people that were big in the 2000s but I feel like for some people this was not their breakout role, but they weren't as well known. It was kind of maybe later in the 2000s that they really had their big breaks. Yeah, definitely. And this was directed by Mary Harron, female director, we'd love to see it, whose other work includes I Shot Andy Warhol, The Notorious Betty Page, and The Moth Diaries. Now there's a lot of like trivia for this film as well, which we'll like get to near the end. But one thing I thought was quite interesting about this is like she really fought back when it came to the screenplay of this, because obviously it's based on the book um, by Brett Easton Ellis. But when they were doing the scripting for this, like originally she felt like it didn't properly showcase social privilege a lot. Mm. And she was she really fought back on 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 the scripting of this and was like, no, if we're gonna do this, it needs to be done like this way. It needs to show like the the kind of moral anguish that Patrick goes through. But yeah, I mean, it, this film is about the 1% as well. And she didn't want to kind of shy away from the toxic masculinity and the bro culture of it. And you can definitely see that in this. Yeah, like Brett Easton Ellis said, you know, obviously it was a highly controversial book. I think in Australia mm-hmm. it was sold, eh, shrink-wrapped. So you couldn't just read it in the shop. Like You had to buy this and take it home to read it. And he felt like Mary Harron was probably like one of the first people to properly get the film, like get the book rather, because he's like, you're like you're not supposed to identify with Patrick Bateman. You're not supposed to think what he's doing is okay. You're supposed to question his morality, and question the people around him. And he's like, I don't understand what people didn't get about that, about the book, but he loves the way that she brought that through and Guinevere Turner into the film. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Like, you don't always have to relate to our protagonist or antagonist in this case. You know, I mean, he is a psychopath. So really, you shouldn't really relate to a psychopath. (laughs) No. No. But let's get into the 
plot. Well, actually, no, sorry. Before we get into the plot, we were speaking a little bit off recording. So, Lindsay, you've seen this film like a bunch of times. You, you've said that to me. Do you remember like the first time you saw it? I take it you're a pretty big fan of it if you've seen it like a fair few times. I love this film. And what I love the most about it as well, which, which can be frustrating sometimes because when people say, what do, you th- what do you think happens? Like, is it in his head or is it real? I have a different answer every single time I watch it because there's <laughs> so many different little things you can pick up on. There's so many different angles you can view this from. Like you were saying, there's like a like a wealth privilege, like yuppie culture type lens to view it from. There's the kind of, you know, the way they all pretend to be up and up on social issues, but they're actually all like quite racist, sexist, homophobic. You know, there's a very feminist angle to it. There's the toxic masculinity thing, which I feel like shows so much why men need feminism as well. Uh, you know, there's a mental health angle, there's neurodivergency angle. There's so, so, so much in this. I just, I absolutely love this film. Yeah, exactly. And one of the first things I was going to say um, before we got into the plot of this as well, I mean, we, we usually talk about, you know, we call out a film for its bullshit, like throughout it, if it's done something wrong. But like, for anyone that hasn't seen American Psycho, I mean, throughout this, it is notoriously racist, homophobic, sexist, anti-Semitic as well. Semitic, uh, is that right? Yes, that's yeah. the right word. Yeah, so, um, so just like be aware of that, because I, I have seen this film a few times, but it's been like quite a hot minute since I've seen it. And some of the language made me feel uncomfortable. And like as a white person, like I can only imagine... Um, you know, for a black person seeing this film or, or anyone that isn't white really isn't a straight white man. Like some of the language in this is like quite uncomfortable. The way women are treated in this as well. Um, and you, you normally would say that's for the time, but that is based on the book because, you know, Patrick Bateman is a very shitty person. The people mm. that he works with are shitty white men. So it's accurate to who they are. Yeah, and I think, that's like another thing that I like about the film, like from the source material, like this is a critique of masculinity in a mm-hmm. way, like and how it's forced on men. This is written by a gay man, so obviously he's not going to meet the expectations of masculinity placed on him by society. And then the film is written by two women, and women are of course going to understand how fucking shitty men are to mm-hmm. women and how toxic the societal standards of masculinity are so as much as I are right there is a lot of you know the isms show through in the film I think it all works really well in the narrative to critique yeah like male fragility toxic masculinity yeah it's not supporting it it's criticizing it and it's it's showing a realistic representation of 80s corporate America um so with that we'll get into the plot so this is set in 1987 and we start off with uh, our antagonist protagonist whatever you'd like to say uh, Patrick Bateman who's a young and wealthy New York City investment banker um he spends a lot of his time like fine dining at like popular restaurants keeping up appearances we start off with this like really nice kind of like montage like a lot of the first like half of the film we hear a lot of dialogue in his head and he has this very strict routine of what he does you know he gets he's very 
vain so you know he works out he has a routine of doing like like push-ups at certain times he like um gets manicures he tans he goes to certain restaurants and he has his fiance Evelyn Williams and like his like circle of like wealthy friends um you know he he's having an affair as well and all these other kinds of things it's just showing him in his very lavish lifestyle in his big fancy um apartment as well what do you think of these first couple scenes, Lindsay? Because it all, it already shows kind of like how much of a control freak he is as well. He's very like stringent. He likes things in a certain way. He obviously likes routine. Um, and he very much likes to keep up appearances. Yeah, like he does the things he does because that's what you're supposed to do. He's supposed to have the body, he's supposed to have the apartment, you know, has he has this extensive skincare routine. And I, I was kind of looking at the labels on this watch and it's like I noticed that they were all expensive like I've kind of said before you shouldn't put that much shit on your face like it's not good for your skin but he's doing it because it's expensive and if he he's buying all these products it means that he's wealthy and if he looks good it also means that he's wealthy and they're going to these expensive places not because they're good but because he can and it shows that he has enough money to go there and like they're serve this food like if you notice in the opening scene they don't even eat it they're just looking at it um they're more concerned it's hilarious like there's not even a good bathroom to do coke in that's what they're concerned about and again with the cocaine i know it's very indicative of the 80s but cocaine's not a cheap drug so again that shows how wealthy they all are and they've all got their designer suits on and that's important as well because it's a literal visual marker of how much money that they have yeah, and like we'd said, and we'll get onto this scene as well, it's, it's kind of, I mean, there's so many good scenes. Part of me, even though this isn't like a gory big scene, it's kind of one of my favourite scenes because of how cringy it is. They all try and one-up each other. There is, like you'd said before, it's it's kind of like office culture where everyone's like, you know, you could say, I, I don't know, I did, I'm trying to think of something, but I did this and you're like, oh, I did it like 10 times better kind of thing. You know, always trying to one-up each other. It's that competitiveness. I know, someone's like, I went to Tenerife. So, and then someone else is like, I went to Tenerife. It's like, fucking shut up. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> I went to the moon while I went to fucking Mars. So, fuck you. Um, but you can see this between them, even between their suits and stuff, because we have a character who we later find out is is gay. And again, there is that, that homophobia angle as well. But he notices straight away, like the suits that Patrick wears and oh, it's Valentino, I'm wearing this. Um, but we have this scene with the business cards that I fucking love this because... This is my favourite scene in the film. It's Damn. fucking hysterical. It makes me piss myself laughing every single time. Like, other people are like, this is not the funniest scene in the film. But it has always made me laugh because you just see Patrick Bateman sweat so much because somebody has a piece of paper that is better than his. And I'm like, please tell me that that's not male fragility. Please tell me that you've not seen that in like Boys in the Pub and stuff before. Like, and it's ridiculous. And like trying to explain to somebody who is maybe in the throes of male fragility toxic masculinity what it is and they're not going to get it like I think you need to show them this scene to show them how like ridiculous and damaging their behavior is but this is my favorite scene in the whole film it is it's it's, it's essentially the business card version of them getting their dicks down being like who's the biggest dick kind of thing yes yes it is and like as somebody that used to be a graphic designer and do print stuff, like the the, 
the papery kind of nerd in me was enjoying this a little bit. And I'm, I'm also thinking, these prints aren't that fun. Go to Vista Print. Like these business cards aren't that fucking expensive. I was looking at it, I was like, oh, you could have, got, could have gotten better on this, could have gotten better on that. So <laughs> that was quite amusing. But yeah, they're flaunting their business cards. And Patrick thinks he's the big I am. He's like, oh, do you want to see my new business card? Because they're all these vice presidents. He takes it out and it's like, it's on this like off-white paper and it's in this specific font. And then another one of the associates is like, oh, well, look at mine. And then another, I think there's like maybe three or two or three of them that start showing their business cards. And like you say, Patrick is just fucking fuming. The rage that comes from this man's body, you can see like the sweat dripping off and he's so angry Mm. at the thought of somebody having a better business card. And one piece of trivia that I really liked for this as well, you know, the like really dramatic, like when they take it out of the thing, that's actually like a sword coming out of a sheath they used is the is the sound for that oh that is so clever yeah um what i also kind of like about this scene obviously they all are vice presidents i don't know how you can have so many vice presidents (laughs) acquisitions is spelled incorrectly on every single business card (laughs) but i think it maybe makes a comment like me and you and i'm sure other people listening we went to uni and worked like post 2008 financial crisis and another piece of corporate speak I fucking hate is doing more with less mm-hmm. and I feel like nowadays like jobs are that bit harder we do a lot more for less money uh, and with less resources as well and it's just like here like he's saying listening to music at one point just like not doing anything and it's like these people actually sit around and do nothing and make so much money and I like I feel like there's maybe like a, a bit of a um, like in hindsight a kind of comment there about like boomer mentality against millennials because we have had to work really hard in really difficult financial circumstances and we're frequently told that we're bloody lazy and it's very frustrating Um, you know people are getting degrees and master's degrees as well to do the same job that someone could get straight out of high school like 30 years beforehand and to be told you're lazy for it is very frustrating when the job is now harder that is so true though I mean how many times I'm sure you've probably experienced before I'm sure a few people will have experienced it that are listening you will have somebody that's like a CEO CFO whatever it is they're making like six figures Okay, they've been in their career 30 years and they will come to you and be like, how do I convert this Word document into a PDF? Like, come on, you should know these things. It's your fucking pay grade and then you're calling us lazy. Get mm. fucked. Yeah, exactly. Google it. Google it. Learn it for yourself. Yeah. Please and thank you. <laughs> and, and also just now for our generation, you know, we're in a living cost crisis all over the world. But I mean, especially in the UK, inflation's going up. Are wages going up? No. No. Absolutely not. So if you have the audacity to call millennials lazy or Gen Z lazy, boomers, get off your high horse because you got your house for like 40k, 30 years, 40 years ago. You're sitting about in your six-figure job. Like, just get the fuck. Yes. Rant over. (laughs) This is a ranty episode. But, um... So enraged, like, um, so it's Paul Allen's card that really kind of sets him off. So Paul Allen is very much like the equivalent 
of Patrick Bateman. Like they look very similar. Mm. Um, they wear kind of same glasses. They go to the same restaurants. They have the same kind of outfits. But like Patrick just takes anything to like try and one up him. He even says something like, "My haircut's slightly better," mm. and it's like, like you know, he he needs something. Um, so obviously Paul's card is better than his. His is the fanciest one. They're all like fucking jizzing over this bloody business card. So he's raging about it. And in this rage, um, he confronts a homeless man in an alley at night. You know, this this poor man is saying, like, you know, I'm really, you know, like I'm really cold. Do you have any spare change or anything like that? And um, you know, Patrick's almost kind of like teasing with him because he thinks he's gonna give him money. And then he pulls something out of his briefcase. He starts insulting him as well, saying, like, you stink, you know, you're a vile human being. Like this, he doesn't know. The circumstances of this man that's another thing as well you don't know why somebody's homeless so never judge mm. someone that's homeless and then he stabs him so this is the first death we have and he also to add fucking salt to the wound stomps the dog to death like who kills an animal this this man like were you raging because I, I this always upsets me yeah like the way he taunts the man is just awful like it's obviously not very nice. Like you say, you don't know why people are homeless and um, what kind of issues they might have. Uh, and obviously hearing the dog squealing to death as well. There was one day, actually, I was watching It With Bear and when the dog oh, gets no. stomped to death, he starts like barking at the screen, like, go get him, <laughs> You go, Bear, you fight him. <laughs> um, so after this... Um... Uh, Patrick goes out with Alan um, and gets uh, who mistakes Bateman for another co-worker so there's also this kind of confusion as well because so, obviously Patrick throughout this film starts using like different alibis and different names and like this is kind of where we start getting the is are things reality are they figments of his imagination you know at least for me that's where it starts coming about um, so it's like this yeah. whole kind of other theme running through the film as well though is that all these people are so desperate to fit in to the point that everybody calls each other by another name mm-hmm. you know like in this scene coming up Paul Allen doesn't even realise that he's actually sitting in front of Patrick Bateman and starts slagging Patrick Bateman off because everybody kind of looks the same they're all wearing the same suits, they've all got similar build, they've all got the same haircuts, they're all wearing the same glasses, they all go to the same places and like Patrick is so desperate to fit in and I think that's maybe where people do maybe see like a neurodivergent angle because we can see on the inside that he is very different to everybody else everybody (laughs) else could be feeling the same way but we're seeing this through Patrick's perspective and he as much as he looks fine on the outside he's very different on the inside and I don't know there is this whole thing about like social conformity that rubs me the wrong way a little bit and I think you'll get it as well especially someone who's heavily tattooed blue haired um, <laughs> that way as well like we're both women we're both not particularly interested in having children and things like that and things that conform to the societal norms and for some people they are absolutely desperate to fit in You'd, like depending on things that might have happened to them they actually just want to have their 8 to 5 married life 2.5 kids and like you know mm-hmm. good for them and I think Patrick in some ways he wants to appear to be like that you know what I mean but because everybody is the same all of their names are kind of interchangeable because 
all they, they all talk about the same things and go to the same places and they all bloody look the same. So why would you need to know who this specific person is when they're all kind of clones of each other? That's very true. I feel like there's two, like a couple other takes on this. Like one of them as well with corporate America is in the sense that it's the same in, in any kind of Western corporate world, to be honest. it's You are kind of seen as a number. You're not really mm. seen as a person. So I feel like that's another take on it. Like when it comes to like work colleagues and stuff like that, you know, if everybody's the same, people want to conform. Like it's a really sad truth for a lot of places. People don't care who you are outside of work. And, you know, you don't really get to know a person. But another side of it as well is I suppose on the social privilege side, when it comes to the 1%, these kind of like wealthy communities, the biggest thing associated with you is your name. Like, you know, like your last name and the prestige that comes with it. People don't give a shit who you are. It's like, if they if they know you, if you have like notoriety or wealth or fame or whatever it is, that's all associated with a name. Mm-hmm. And people just want to know that person or be seen with that person. And it could be that, you know, they're all scrambling to be in the room with the right people, though they actually forget who they are. All they care about is the name. Mm. So that could be another step. But yeah, social conformity, that's a very valid point. There's so many different, like, I feel like we could do an episode just on this film because there's so much to talk about. Yeah. (laughs) And so at this... um, at this bit where like Paul Allen mistakes dating for another co-worker, they make plans for dinner after a Christmas party. Um, and this is where like Patrick really starts resenting Alan for his affluent lifestyle. There's also this thing where it's like they go to the same fucking restaurant as well, and they don't even fucking like it. It's called Dorcia. <laughs> and Paul's like, Oh, I got reservations this night. And then you know, Patrick's like really snarky about it because he couldn't get reservations, and he ends up be, like just showing up anyway, because he's like, I have to be at this place and everybody to see me. Um so yeah, he resents him for being able to pretend to like get this reservation at Dorcia, which is like a really exclusive restaurant. Like you said, Bateman can't go to it. Um, he ends up manipulating Alan into like getting drunk. He gets him absolutely shit-faced and lures him into his apartment. Now, if I went into somebody's apartment, right, and they have like newspapers on the floor and they have covers on that sofa, I don't care how pissed I am, I'm running for my life. I know, but I think that's maybe the difference between being a man and being a woman. Like, sure. I think, unfortunately, as a woman, you do have to think about your safety sometimes. Like, you can't always walk around in the dark. You can't you always do certain things because, fortunately, there's loads of creeps out there. So, I, like, of course, like, we as, like, femme-presenting people will be like, what the fuck's going on here? But Paul Allen doesn't give a shit. He's he's a guy. Like his safety is not really going to matter to him that much mm-hmm. because, like physicality wise, he's very evenly matched with, uh, Patrick Bateman. So it's not even like he's maybe got in the back of his head. Oh, he's a bigger guy than me. He could beat me up. Like he's just going to be like, oh, pals drinking. Woo! Like <laughs> yeah, that's that's true because of his privilege and because of him being a man and being white and being upper class. He can kind of walk around in the world with no fear. So probably imagine? doesn't see. Oh, wouldn't that be nice? <laughs> <laughs> um. So he lures Alan into the apartment, and I really love. What Patrick does before his kills where he starts talking about music this is again where I see the neurodivergence in him because it's like clearly his special interest mm. and we have a lot of different like music in this film which where a lot of the budget went to like you know there's New Order there's Phil Collins there's 
oh there's loads those are the ones that I remember but there's a bunch of other ones he's talking about one one of these albums and asking like Alan about it and then he gets like a wrinkle on and he gets an axe um oh in this scene it's Huey Lewis in the news sorry I just saw that um and then kills him with an axe a very violent kind of bloody murder and I think this is probably one of the most iconic kills you know you see Paul Allen's like body like on the floor and um, Patrick's just like lighting a cigarette covered in blood and it's just I don't know how you feel about this scene but like the, the iconography and the cinematography of this is like so stunning as well like the stark white and the the blood splashes and all that kind of stuff yeah absolutely Christian Bale's blood splattered face from this scene is like one of the I feel like one of the most recognizable images if you're big into film um what I also love about this is that Hugh Lewis and the News have actually done a parody of this scene with Weird Al Yankovic and like oh. Hugh Lewis is like or the lead singer is Patrick Bateman and he attacks Weird Al Yankovic and he's like don't make any more parodies of my music and it's actually really funny. <laughs> I have to look that up after I didn't know that. It's good um yeah I think it's on YouTube um but yeah, this scene is iconic. They use it in such a like cheery kind of song, Hip to Be Square, in the background to juxtapose this really violent, brutal death. Like, Patrick Beam is really fucking pissed off at this guy and he is going in. Like, he's going in on Paul Allen. I feel like nowadays as well, people are just like, yay, someone's killing Jared Leto. <laughs> I had a Jared Leto slagging episode a few weeks ago with um, Drunken Horror for Panic Room. And in that film, he's got bloody cornrows. And I was like, as soon as I see that, I was like, for fuck's sake. Like... <laughs> I know, can't escape it. But yeah, I think this is where the catharticness is because mm. we all have that co-worker we fucking despise. Yeah. And you can just see all the rage coming out. He's wanted to do that for a while. Mm. Absolutely. And like, there, there, there is always that person in the office that everybody hates for various reasons and you just want to like bash them. <laughs> and yeah, he's kind of fulfilling that wish for people to feel like... <laughs> Um, so Patrick goes into Alan's apartment. He leaves a message on his answering machine saying that he's like gone on a business trip to London, basically trying to cover cover his arse. Um, so after this, we have a private investigator, Donald Kimball, who's played by um, Willem Dafoe. Um, he interviews Bateman regarding Alan's disappearance. Um, and at this point, like it's kind of where he starts to slip up a bit because... He thinks he has an alibi. He has his diary out and stuff like that. And without fully giving everything away, the private investigator is like, oh, that, that's not what I have down for what you did that night. He starts kind of panicking, but he tries to keep it kind of cool and calm. So the private investigator is like, okay, I'll meet you like in lunch for lunch next week. If you can let me know then where you were, that would be great. This also shows social privilege because if this wasn't a rich white man, and they didn't have their alibi neat and tight in a little bow straight away, they would be getting down straight to the police station. Oh, absolutely. Like, I I feel like that conversation has kind of come up again with the Dahmer series that's been on television, mm-hmm. on Netflix rather. And, you know, Jeffrey Dahmer moved into a predominantly black area because police officers don't care if black people go missing. And, you know, there's other instances of serial killers being in black communities and black people 
like particularly like drug users and sex workers going missing and nothing being done about it so you know up to 20 people could be dead and you know it just takes a fluke really for something to be done about it so yeah you're so right because in that situation Jeffrey Dabber used his white privilege to mm-hmm. go undetected for something like 12 years uh, which is awful and yeah you can see it here because they've got a lot of money and like money is privileged too like if you in in the American like justice system with the bail system like if you are someone who's extremely wealthy and someone posts bail for like five million dollars some for some people five million dollars is nothing and mm-hmm. they can just post it and that's fine but for other people mm-hmm. like if it's you know 5k there's no way they're going to be able to raise that kind of money and they're not going to be able to just walk around freely for a horrible crime like other rich people could do that's so true I really like I'm really not a fan of the saying of money can't money can't buy you happiness that's true but money can buy you convenience and safety and a lot of other things that we fucking need so the people that tend to say that as well the ones that have privilege and have never known what it's like to live in poverty so then mm. I use that saying because yeah it's it's a load of shite um so after this speaking of sex workers we get onto this scene um so um Patrick Bateman ends up taking two prostitutes to well sorry two sex workers it says prostitutes here but we'll say sex workers um, who he decides to call Chris, Christine, Sabrina. He he doesn't give them a chance to say their names. Um, at first, like I wasn't sure how he was going to treat them because the sex worker Christy, she has a bath in his place, and she, you know he's given her a glass of Chardonnay and stuff. And we know he's not a good guy by any means. Um, but I didn't know where they were going to take this. Um, so they have another sex worker that comes in, which is Sabrina. Um, and he very much orders them to do specific things. It's like, take your dress off this way. You have to do this. You have to do that. He has a camera. Now, this scene, I'm really interested to see what you say, because this is like the most unsatisfying threesome I've ever seen in my life. I'm sorry, but Patrick Bateman has to be a shite shag. <laughs> well, he's just really more concerned about himself. Like, yeah, looking at himself in the mirror, it's kind of like... I don't know, like a real life porno for him, and he's getting his kicks by watching himself have sex. Um, but I think I found out about this scene actually, which I thought was interesting, was that in the original cut of this scene, the sex workers looked so upset that um the like the film board gave it an NC seventeen rating. And it was based on the fact that the sex workers just didn't look like they were enjoying themselves. So Mary Haddon had to cut 18 seconds out of this scene to bring it down to an R rating. Um, and I just like never thought that a film board would care about something like that, that they didn't want to show a scene where women weren't enjoying themselves having sex. They looked too sad in the sex scene. So they had to cut it down to get it a better rating. I didn't know that but I mean god forbid that you know somebody who's just trying to make a living and is being put through like pretty awful fucking situation isn't exactly going to be enjoying it no but I think I, I don't know if they're worried about the, like the implications of other men just thinking that that's okay um, and <laughs> like watching it but 
yeah, I was like quite surprised at that. So they cut 18 seconds out of this scene. But I feel like, I don't feel like those other 18 seconds were necessary. I feel like we get the picture. We'd, we definitely get the picture. Um, and that's another thing we haven't really talked about, you know, Patrick Bateman also has like a really complicated relationship with sex as well. Like he constantly has porn on in the background, just like while he's taking calls and all this stuff. There was later on as well where one of his um like employees finds like his notebook and he's got like a lot of like sexual drawings and stuff like that. The way he treats women is really awful, but it, it's the way he treats sex as well. Like it's I don't know what your thoughts are on that, but there's probably a discussion to be had there about like the way men treat women when it comes to sex and obviously how porn influences sex when you know it's not ethical porn yeah there is a kind of commodification of women angle in this film because obviously he has his fiance evelyn and that's what appearances she's the daughter mm-hmm. of someone very wealthy and then he has Catherine who he's having an affair with yeah who is one of his co-workers fiancés or wives I can't remember and at one point he's just got her like propped up drugged out of her head mm-hmm. in the barbari- barbaria a uh, barbarian um restaurant which he's telling her is a dorsia but she's so out of it she doesn't even care so it's like he's got the mistress as well so that's another like check for his like privilege card and then using sex workers as well it's just it's very transactional it's again a way to show that you have a lot of money that you can go and use it to get sex workers but then he picks christy up off the street and don't know much about sex work and how much you charge but generally the ones you pick up off the street are a bit cheaper uh, than the ones that you maybe can book through the newspaper it would be at the time um, so maybe he's not as rich as he makes out to be, or maybe mm-hmm. Christy is someone that he wants to show off to for some reason. Like, I have to impress you while you service me, or you have to see how much money I have. And it's a privilege that I, like, I'm spending my time and my money on you, or something like that. Well, that's true, because when he first meets them as well, and they sit down in the room, he, like, he says to them, like, do you want to know what I do for a living? All this kind of stuff. And they're like, no, nope, not really. Yeah. And he's he's so insulted by that. He's like, how dare you not want to know like how I got this big apartment and who I am and all this kind of stuff. Like they just want to do their job and go. Yeah. Because you know? he will just be not just another guy to them. Like that, like you say, that's their job. They're just like, oh, what's this fucking weirdo want to do? <laughs> like, when's the hour up? And but for him, like, he wants to be the most impressive guy that they're gonna sleep with that year. Yeah, exactly. And it's just not the case for them. And um, so after this, um, you know, at this point, you're not sure if he's going to kill the two sex workers, but he doesn't. He ends up paying them, and then they go. Um, Bateman's colleague uh, Louis ends up revealing a new business card himself as well after everything's going on and again this makes Patrick fucking raging business cards are his trigger it seems <laughs> um so he goes into the bathroom he puts gloves on and he's so close to strangling him but um Louis thinks it's like a sexual advance and says like you know, I I think, like, you're looking at me and stuff like that. Like, he assumes that, like, Patrick is, like, you know, coming on to him. And that's obviously not the case. So Patrick Bateman flees. What do we think of this scene? Because obviously there's, like, 
the homophobia kind of side in here and the stereotyping. And Patrick Bateman does not expect this. And it panics him a bit as well, which is like quite interesting to see because you don't ever really see him panicked and running away. Yeah, like, <laughs> it's funny. I was just thinking there, like, if Patrick Bateman is neurodivergent, probably all those times he was staring at Louis is like, disassociating and like not yeah. even registering <laughs> what he's looking at um I know I can be quite bad for that just like going in my own little world and he's probably thinking one of his like murderous fantasies and Louis like oh my god he fancies me <laughs> uh, <laughs> but um yeah very indicative of the time period of course um the AIDS crisis and stuff is going on at this point so people like were even scared to touch like other gay people other people with AIDS so it doesn't surprise me that as much as like earlier on in the film you know Patrick Bateman's given off this soliloquy about why something someone else has said is uh, racist that he himself has a little bit of a like male panic and it's just like oh my god if someone sees this like this they're going to think I'm gay and that's going to mm-hmm. bring down my social privilege and so I have to like nope the fuck out of here like he washes his hands with his gloves on and leaves like he is in a, a state at this idea that someone maybe thinks that he's gay or someone might see them together and think that they're gay together yeah exactly he's like trying to wash the gay away and it's like <laughs> it, it again it's that toxic masculinity culture and we see it even now it's like no homo bro as if like the worst thing that you can be is gay or somebody assuming you're gay yeah exactly um so after this you know we'll skip forward a little bit but you know patrick Ends up having a couple other kills. You know, he ends up killing a model and has her head in the freezer. Um, And we also have a scene where he invites his secretary, Jean, to dinner. You can see that Jean, they make her come across as very kind of like plain Jane. Um, You know, you can see that like they work together quite well. And you feel like Jean maybe understands him a little bit more than other people. She tries to get to know him. It seems like she genuinely likes him. so Patrick ends up suggesting like to meet at his apartment for drinks. He's so like bitchy to her. He's like, oh, you're going to wear that. You need to wear something better. You know, if you're going to be with me, you have to like look the part and everything. Um, so she comes over and he plans to kill her with a nail gun. He has like a nail gun to her head. But then he decides not to after he gets like a voicemail from um from his fiance, Evelyn Williams. Um after this, he meets the private investigator again for lunch. He forgot about it, and you know it's a week later, and he's having to have this lunch, um, and tells him that he's like not a suspect in Alan's disappearance. Um, but then the private investigator says that you know he feels that a colleague of Bateman's claims to have spotted Paul Allen in London, so it calls the investigation into question. So at this point, Patrick's like, "Oh, okay, like I can get away with this." But then he like starts doubting himself and, you know, somebody says like, oh, you were also seen this night with like all your other work colleagues. So again, this is where names and places are changing. And he's like, oh yeah, I was at that thing. I forgot. And I ended up going, because at first he says he went on a date. He's like, oh, I went on a date the next night. And I think as an audience, you start getting confused as well. Like I've seen this film a few times and I still kind of get lost at some point. So I'm like, wait, who's who? Who's done what? What's, what's, what's happened? And see, that's the thing, because they're all trying to, well, I feel like anyway, trying to conform to this standard, that they they are kind of all interchangeable. 
Yeah, exactly. Um, so after this bit, um, yeah. So Patrick Bateman ends up bringing um, Christy back to his apartment. So this is one of the sex workers that we mentioned before. He meets her, um, I think it's down like near, it's like an alley somewhere. Um, and at first she's like, you know, what you did to me was really violent. Like I might have to get surgery for this. I had to go to the doctors after, but he keeps trying to lure her into his limo with money. Um, and he promises like, it's not going to be like last time. It's going to be fine. It's going to be a similar situation. I'm going to call you Christy. We're going to have another woman in the apartment. And eventually she agrees and you feel really horrible, awful for her. But at the same time, you know, desperate times call for desperate measures. We don't know what her situation is. And if you need money, you know, people will do what they have to do to survive. Yeah. Like you can really see the fear on her face with like, and she's very like pulling back from him. Like, Oh no, I don't want to go anywhere near you, but like you say, um, needs must for some people and she does go with them. Um, so he ends up taking her back to his apartment. This is a new apartment as well. Um, and we meet his acquaintance, Elizabeth, where like he he also drugs Elizabeth as well before giving them wine um, and ends up in a similar situation where he's having like another threesome. So he has sex with Elizabeth and Christy. However, this does get quite sinister because he ends up killing Elizabeth under the sheets. Christy obviously runs and she starts finding multiple corpses in this apartment. Um, and as she's searching for an exit, Patrick chases her and um, he has a chainsaw at this point as well. But she manages to flee down, down the, the staircase so she gets away. But at this point, Bateman breaks off his engagement with Williams as well, which... We kind of knew this engagement was for appearances anyway. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, a lot of people with this film kind of point to something that happens later on, an explosion that happens later on, and a kind of incident with an ATM as to when this film gets a bit like fantastical, farcical almost. But I would almost argue it's here. Like, for what purpose in New York City would you have for a chainsaw in an apartment? Yeah, why would you need one? I mean, it just pops into my head right now. It's like you have absolutely no need for it. Like, people I know with chainsaws like live out in the country, have garages where they keep them or big sheds or whatever. Like, what reason do you have to have a chainsaw? in New York City you don't you don't you don't even need one here like have a baseball bat or something but no a chainsaw it's not evil dead you don't need a boomstick exactly um also as well Elizabeth is played by Guinevere Turner who is the other screenplay writer oh. and uh, she's actually a lesbian as well and they make a bit of a joke about her going to a lesbian college um so I, that's just a fun little thing she put in for herself. I love that. Um, that speaks to me. Also, I kind of love in this bit as well. At first, she's like, you know, I don't, I don't want to be touched by another woman. I don't want to have a threesome. And then as it starts, she is very much enjoying herself. She yeah. is, she is, she is having her gay awakening, and I love that for her. <laughs> <laughs> um. So after this bit, this is where Patrick really kind of starts. I mean he's lost his mind anyway but he really starts kind of losing the plot this is where you know earlier in the film he says that he doesn't feel emotions the only things he feels is like grotesque 
and like disgust he doesn't like he doesn't connect with people on a human level this is where he starts kind of like feeling emotions and or we assume some kind of emotions about the actions and this bit I remember the first time I watched this and I was like oh my god don't do something to the cat but he uses an ATM and he sees a cat and the ATM says feed me a stray cat so he prepares to shoot the cat but a woman confronts him and he shoots her and this is where he starts killing people in public willy-nilly but oh were you you just get the fear for this little bubba this little kitten like (gasps) I know because you just like imagine what could happen and luckily nothing does because it's as well it's like feed me a stray cat and it's just like and a kitten just walks up and it's just like when is that gonna happen it's it's all too convenient isn't it yeah it's all too coincidental um so after this there's like a police chase that obviously ensues but Patrick ends up killing the officers. He shoots them. He blows up a police car. He ends up killing two more people on his way to his office. And he calls his lawyer, um, Harold, and starts, like, confessing everything that he's done. And this is the first time we really see emotion. Like, he admits to all of his crimes, claiming to have killed between 20 to 40 people. He also says that, you know, he's also eaten some of his victims. He's eaten brains. He's tried cooking them. Um what do you think of this? Because, I mean, this is the first time we really see any emotion from him. Yeah, like, Christian Bale fucking bodies this scene so hard. Like, it's like a good long shot, close-up of his face. Mm-hmm. So, you know, you can't really hide anything. Like, and he is going through this roller coaster of emotions on the phone. Like I say, it's the first time everything's spilling out. He's like, I've killed 20 to 40 people. Um, if you actually watch the kill count on YouTube, it's only 16. But oh. um, <laughs> he he's going through it. He's having this crisis of conscience. And, you know, you watch this film, you're like, how is this man not nominated for all the acting awards? Because I can't think of many other people who could do something like this. And it's even that thing that he does beforehand where he's got that demonic smile and it's like the lights are on but nobody's home. Mm. Like, it's such a soulless look in his eyes. Yeah. And that's hard, that's hard to do. He, re- he really, like you said, he embodies this role. Um, so the following morning... Um, Patrick visits Paul Allen's apartment to clean up the remains, but sees that it's like up for sale and no body parts are there. The realtor tells him that the apartment doesn't belong to Paul Allen before telling him to leave. So you're kind of like, you know, what's 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 going on? Um, Patrick ends up meeting his colleagues for lunch um, and Jean, as we kind of said earlier, she finds like really detailed drawings of like murders, mutilations, like sexual iconography in his journal. Um, and then Patrick sees, you know, his lawyer that he confessed to earlier. So he mentions the phone message and his lawyer mistakes Bateman for another colleague and laughs off the confession as a joke. He's like, haha, that was so funny. Um, so Patrick's like, no, I am Patrick Bateman. And I, I did this. Like, I did do what I did. But, you know, his lawyer, even though he looks a little bit frightened, he's like, it's impossible. Like, I had dinner recently with Paul Allen in London. He's not dead. So you're thinking, what's going on? Um, So Patrick ends up returning to his friends and they start musing over, like, Ronald Reagan, whether he was, like, a harmless old man or a psychopath. 
And Bateman, you know, unsure if his crimes are real or imaginary, he realizes that he he's not going to get the punishment that he wants. Like nobody, no, his lawyer doesn't believe him. His lawyer's not going to do anything about it. And that's just kind of where it ends. Yeah, I think in this whole scene, you know, he's been told by yet another person who's mistaken him for another person that Patrick Bateman's a fucking loser. So that's obviously not going to be great to hear. And then to have like nobody believe you, like I feel like I feel like after this watch, I'm like, it's all in his head. But he really feels like he has done this and he's not gonna get punished for it and nobody cares. And it's like, what does that do? to your psyche as a person he's kind of bottled up all his emotions had this like emotional blowout over the phone and he's like i've done all these terrible things and he's just been laughed at like what does that do to you as a person i know like he's trying to do the right thing essentially probably for the first time in his life and he's not he wants to be punished he wants to be reprimanded and he's not getting it um and like you say, everyone always has different debates on whether it's real or it's in his head. I just wanted to mention a couple of points that kind of agree with what you were saying that says this is actually in his imagination. You've mentioned a couple there already, Lindsay, but you know some of the other ones are like, nobody notices the blood on the floor when he drags the body bag, mm. when he's in the laundromat. You know, There's loads of blood on his shirt and he says it's like cranberry juice. Nobody's bothered by that. And um, you know, nobody comes to the rescue when the victim bangs on the neighbouring doors and asks for help. Um, nobody hears the chainsaw when it's turned on in the apartment complex. Um, you know, the series of the shooting episode, like he shoots at police officers in the car and the car, you know, goes on flames as if it was from a grenade launcher. So really a shot, like it's not a shotgun, it's a pistol. Mm. Shouldn't be able to set a car on fire like that. Um, and then obviously the lawyer one. So there's quite a few things there where it's like it's just too convenient and people just you would find out by that point. You would be caught out. Yeah. Because he's not hiding it. He's doing it very publicly. Yeah, exactly. And um, so what do you what do you think about that? What do you think about that ending? I don't know, like I enjoy it, but in terms of like what it says about society, like I'm not sure. Like that we're all willing to just turn a blind eye to like people who are in like crisis situations because we kind of are yeah that's true because on one hand if he has done what he's done it's a take on that like rich white men can get away with murder literally and like if you have so much power and notoriety and fame or wealth, whatever it is, you're untouchable. Or if it's the other side where he's actually severely mentally unwell and is going through a psychotic episode, another take on it is that nobody's going to listen to you and nobody's going to take you seriously. Even, you know, if you're confessing to to murders and, you know, the mental health crisis that's in the States and the UK, just Western world is obviously very paramount and it's very hard to be taken seriously. So both sides kind of make a different stance. Yeah. Yeah. And I think, you know, like what we're kind of saying at the start, the, if it is all in his head, I do feel like some of 
it speaks to like the rage that we all build up inside of ourselves. Like obviously for Patrick Bateman, he takes it out in the worst way. Like he wants to appear better than women and gays and all the rest of it. So he unleashes that on people that like scare his like fragile masculinity. But it's that way when you're at work, like you feel that rage building up in you. It's like people that are annoying you, people that are one up in you. And you know, sometimes you just want to take an axe to them. So I kind of I get that. Feel that. Say so we've all had those thoughts in our head where you just want to let it all out. Yeah, definitely. So I've kind of mentioned like trivia here and there, but just a couple others that I thought were quite interesting. So the film had a lot of problems with like labels, like designer labels during production. Um, so like Rolex said that anyone in the film could wear watches except for Bateman, which is and, quite interesting. And in the book, him having a Rolex is like a massive deal. And it's like, it's so stupid. Like a lot of companies are just like, oh, we don't want the baddies to have our products. I think Apple has a like a thing like that. Like they don't want any of the bad guys to be using Apple products. And I'm like, it's it's made up. It's made up story. <laughs> Nobody's gonna not buy something because a baddie used it in a movie. Exactly. Um, you're so. I didn't know that that Rolex was a big thing in the book. That's so pathetic. Come on. Um, but yeah, they changed the line as well. So, like, I'm just seeing this just now. So, there's a famous line in the book that says, "Don't touch the Rolex." And they changed it to "Don't touch the watch." Um. Perry Ellis provided the underwear at the last minute because Cal- Calvin Klein pulled out of the film. Um, there's a fashion brand called Comme des Garçons who refused to give one of their overnight bags to be used to carry a corpse. So Jean-Paul Gaultier was used instead. Um, there's a sign at the end as well that says this is not an exit. It's the closing scene. Those are the last words of the novel. Pretty much most of the scripting in this is like word for word from the novel. Mar- Mary Harron was really insistent on that. Um, I'm trying to think what else there is. I told you about the sound effects and stuff like that. Oh, Ewan McGregor was offered the role of Patrick Bateman, but declined after Christian Bale personally urged him to do so. Christian Bale really wanted this role. I know there was a back and forth on who was going to play Patrick Bateman, but I know that like he he really wanted it. And I think there was a while where he was going to get it and then he didn't, and then he eventually got the role. But I mean, it's absolutely iconic. It's probably one of the biggest roles he's ever had. It's perfect casting, really. Like, I don't think anybody is out of place in this film. And he's just absolutely fantastic in this film. I I feel like if there wasn't the kind of pearl clutching that there was around the novel and then the subsequent movie in 2000, that, that, like, there should have been a lot more, like, Oscar buzz, I feel like, around this movie. Like, definitely for his acting. Like, adapted screenplay... Mary had his directing like it's like almost a perfect movie and I feel like that's part and parcel because Christian Bale was just being perfectly cast in this yeah exactly um two other just two more bits of trivia again somebody that didn't want to be associated with this film Whitney Houston refused to allow any of her songs used in this film she didn't want associated with it at all um and interestingly enough, for Willem Dafoe's scenes as the private investigator, Mary Harron made him play it in three different ways. So one is if he was suspicious of Patrick, 
Um, one is if he had no clue as to his guilt and three is if he was undecided. So there's like three different versions of that private investigation. I think that's like another stroke of genius by Mary Harron um, getting Willem Dafoe to do it in the three different ways and then like splicing all those takes together for all of his scenes because you are never sure as an audience member whether he is or not and it, it adds to the idea of whether it's in Patrick's head or if it's real and I kind of feel like without that you you kind of have that more decisive answer no he did do it or no he didn't do it it's all in his head so Willem Dafoe having that direction from Mary Harren and that all being spliced together is just like a perfect choice by her yeah exactly uh, another interesting thing because you were mentioning earlier about Jeffrey Dahmer so I mean Pat, uh, Patrick Bateman mentions him a couple times in this film um, so you can kind of see where he maybe is influenced by Jeffrey Dahmer maybe he looks up to him you know he does admit to, to eating some of his victims um, I, so I could... don't think that I does he mention them in the film because I'm thinking was Dahmer not Find find out in like the early nineties, and this is nineteen eighty seven. He does mention when Jean's in the kitchen. He mentions Jeffrey Dahmer. I'm sure it's Jeffrey, Dahmer, or is it Ted Bundy? It's one of them. It might be Ted. It might be Ted. Bundy. Sorry, but it might be Ted. I'll have to. Yeah, I can double check a bit, but it probably is Ted Bundy then. Um, there's also like references to Texas Chainsaw Massacre in this as well. Um, so it's like a little seventies nod, but yeah. Is there any other trivia that you wanted to mention? Because there's that, there's loads. Yeah, I think you got all my main ones. Because like you said, like with the Whitney Houston thing, and in this movie, it's shown that um, music is a really important part of Patrick Bateman's life, and there is so much music featured in the novel. You know, obviously written down, you can't hear it. Um, and it has to be cut out of the film because like people don't want to be associated with it and also the pricing as well. You kind of mentioned already a lot of the budget went on getting music rights for this because music is really important to Patrick Bateman. It is kind of the only thing that sets him apart from other people is the type of music that he's into and his knowledge of that music. Exactly. Is there anything else that you want to talk about before we get into box office and ratings? Um, no. No? We're good. Okay, let's get let's go on to that. So in terms of um, the budget for this film, even though we're mentioning like a lot of budget went on to music and stuff like that, surprisingly, at least to me anyway, this film had a pretty low budget. The budget was only $7 million and it grossed $34.2 million at the box office. So it did well, but for how iconic this film is, I'm quite surprised at that. It is really disappointing. Like Mary Harren had the film first, and then I can't I can't quite remember what happened, but then it got changed to Oliver Stone's hands. Because like she was very insistent on having Christian Bale as well, and the studio weren't so keen because he would not have been a very well-known actor at the time. Um, and then when it came back into Mary Harren's hands, they took some of the budget away. Oh. Which is really shitty, I mm-hmm. think. And especially, like you say, this is going on to be a cult classic. Like, it's almost a perfect movie. The way this is memed, referenced, like, if someone calls someone Patrick, a Patrick Bateman, you know exactly what they mean. And even if you haven't seen the film, you probably know exactly what they mean. So, yeah, to take away the budget, I think, is, was like a really shitty move of them. 
It definitely is. And like, even if you aren't like a horror fan, if you know film, you're going to know what this, you're going to know Patrick Bateman. You're going to know the blood splattered shot. You know, it's an iconic part of media history. And for them to have done that, it's a really shitty move. Um, But with that being said, we'll also get on to ratings. So IMBD gave American Psycho a 7.6 out of 10. The Rotten Tomatoes critics gave a 69%. (laughs) (laughs) So I had to be done. The audience gave it an 85. And Metacritic gave it a 64. But as we always say, we didn't give a shit what the critics say. Because most of the critics are also straight white men that don't understand a lot of horror. So we just listen to our own opinions instead. So with that being said, Lindsay, what are you going to give American Psycho out of 10? Um, what I will say first, like I've just been talking about how I think this is a perfect movie. I think it's criminal that this film is not an IMDb top 250 and part and parcel of that is because it it's like a 7 rather than an 8. Um, and I'm like, who... Who are these horrible people who are rating this lower? Because I feel like this is a must-watch film. Um, I've been talking this up so much. Uh, I'm gonna give it a ten out of ten. Like, Ooh. I find I know I don't give it tens very often. I find it hard to kind of argue against giving it one. Um, like I just feel like the social commentary of it, the way it can be read in so many different ways, and so it can mean like a different thing to so many different people it's perfectly acted it's the direction and the like adapted screenplay is so good like I just find it hard not to give it a 10-10 that's fair I mean a 10 ten from Lindsay that is a big thing it is and <laughs> <laughs> um, I really enjoyed this film I think you know we've already said it it was what it was the first thing that immediately came to mind for me when it comes to horror, it's a cult classic for horror, but it's a cult classic in terms of film history as well. Like I said, casting's great, writing's great. It has so much social commentary on things that are still issues in society today. So I'm going to give it an eight, an eight and a half out of 10. I really, really like this film. I'm not saying it's a bad film. There's nothing that I can really criticize for it because it's done through a critical lens. The only reason I don't give a 10 out of 10 is just personal preference. Like I like, I really like this film, but there's other films that I would give a 10 out of 10 that's more in my kind of genre. Mm. And that's only a personal preference thing. But I mean, this is definitely a must watch. If you've not seen it, get it watched. Exactly. With that being said, we're going to move on to the next film. Another working nine to five in the corporate office, but a very different type of film is Delco Experiment. So... Lindsay, why don't you take us through that? So the IMDb plot for the Belco experiment is as follows. In a twisted social experiment, 80 Americans are locked in their high-rise corporate office in Bogota, Colombia, and ordered by an unknown voice coming from the company's intercom system to participate in a deadly game of kill or be killed. This film came out in 2016, stars John Gallagher Jr., Tony Goldwyn and Adrian Arjona uh, was directed by Greg McLean, who also worked on Jungle, Vogue and Wolf Creek and is written by uh, the iconic James Gunn. Um, Lucy, you had never seen this film before. What were your initial thoughts on it? 
I fucking love this film. I really, really enjoyed it. And I knew nothing about this film going into it. Like, I'd never seen it. I've never even heard of it. So when you put it in and I was like, what the fuck is this film? I I don't know why I thought when I saw Experiment, I just thought it was going to be something really artsy. But it was just like a really good slasher. I did not expect it to be as gory as it was. Holy shit, it is gory. But... I was like stuck to my screen the whole time. The pacing of it was great. Like, I've not seen a film like this, like ever, I think. Yeah. Um, yeah, it is that bit different. It was the first kind of film of this kind of genre that I had seen before, you know, kind of rich overlord kind of plays deadly game with people. Um, kind of kind of in a similar vein to like hostile in some ways but very mm-hmm. much like would you rather escape room those kind of films um i remember going to see this at cinema i probably regaled you with many tales of my cinebold card that gave me access to all the films uh at one point in time so any film that came out like 2017 2018 i saw it because i was going to see everything and this one it was probably like my second film on the Sunday and I just saw Belko Experiment. That was the next film on. I knew fuck all about it. Uh, and I just went in and I had such a good time. Um, I'm quite a big James Gunn fan. I feel like he writes a lot of fun films. I feel like this film is actually a bit darker than a lot of his other films that he makes. Um, but there is still those like comedic elements in him with his brother, Sean Gunn, I think it is he brings those comedy elements to it that I feel like James Gunn is really well known for. So let's get into the plot then. So the film opens and we're introduced to Mike, who is an employee of Belco, and all of the employees are driving to this big corporate building in the middle of nowhere. And um, all the cars are getting searched, which is weird like off the back anyway um you know there are unfamiliar guards which are kind of you know triggering a few people's like spider senses being like oh maybe something's not right here um so we're introduced to mike as i just said um we see barry norris who is like the ceo of this company or like the head of this building anyway and we're also introduced to Danny, who it's her first day on the job. And every time I watch this film, I just can't help but feel sorry for her. It's her first bloody day. And everything that happens is just crazy. So um, it's through Danny that we learned that all of the American employees at this company have a tracking device uh, implanted into them. Um, Lucy. At the interview process, when they say we're gonna put a tracking device in you, like, does this not just scream red flags? Are the red flags not just dripping after this company? I don't care how much money you were gonna pay me or benefits or anything. I don't even like the thought of my phone tracking me, let alone my fucking workplace. So, nah, absolutely not. I'm not joining you. But somehow these 80 people have been convinced that we're going to put this tracking device in you and it's going to be for your safety. But we'll soon find out that that is not the case at all. Just a quick thing, I'm sorry, but with this company, like, what what are these people doing? I mean, they're all in, like, 
general office jobs, most of them, even security and all that, why would you need electron an electronic device in you? Like a tracking device? I guess, like, it actually, you could argue it comes from a kind of, like, racist slash xenophobic notion that Colombia is a very dangerous place and they're like well people get kidnapped all the time in Colombia so it's actually for your safety uh I don't really know anything about Colombia so I'm not going to confirm or deny I'm not going to same but there is that stereotype about it so I guess they've kind of done it that way so we're also introduced to Evan Smith and like who's this security guard the head of security I'm kind of like I quite like James Gunn, but I I just hate the thought of a white guy writing in black writing in black sign and I'm like why did you write the character like this? Like I, I it just makes me uncomfortable. I don't like it. So like Evan is a kind of a bit of a down point for me um in this film. But um he's the head of security and even he has no idea who these security guards are. So that kind of sets the red flags going as well because why would your head of security not be on the up and up about all of this so we see other scenes of just like all the workers interacting you know just general office chit chat Danny's trying to get comfy in her seat and like meet her new colleagues you know there's people chatting there's workplace romances going on and then this intercom goes off and it instructs the staff to kill two of their co-workers or else there will be consequences. So at first it's played off as a bit of a joke, but then, you know, the building goes into lockdown. They turn the AC off and people start to panic. What was your initial thoughts when this started to happen? I mean, to be honest, just from the intercom going off, I would be the same as Mike and be like, no, I'm getting the fuck out. Like some people are like, oh, it's a joke. You know, there's a lot of like office stereotypes that this plays into. You know, we have the really like sleazy ball guy that's trying to harass like the female co-workers. You have the kind of quiet, shy, nerdy ones. You have the stoners very much like playing. It's like the mean girls of the office world, Um, you know, playing off on all that it's like the lunch table is like the open office desks yeah um but like some of them aren't that bothered by it you know our our ceo boris it's sorry is his name but no it's not boris it's barry norris barry norris i don't know why i'm thinking <laughs> boris, but barry you know he comes across very convincing like this is fine you know that you know it's just that, like somebody's playing a prank you know this kind of stuff but even at that point, I would have been anxious. And then the minute those shutters go down, oh, it's it's proper terrifying because it's just like darkness. Mm. How how would you have felt in that moment? Would you have been like wanting to get out the minute the intercom went off? Yeah, probably. Like, you know, something goes off and it's like you need to kill two people. And I'm like, right, get me the fuck out of here. Because I think I kind of be like Mike in the film as well like just really not wanting to kill people um you know a lot of people throughout the film try and take the well if we kill people then less people die but it's like it's not gonna stop there how like how do you 
recover from something like that. You just, you can't really. No, even if you end up surviving to the end, the sheer trauma and the guilt you're going to have from it, it's like, well, is it worth living with that Mm. as well, you know? Exactly. Um, So our, like, maintenance men, excuse me, our maintenance men try and, like, use some welding materials to get out, but this has no effect on the metal whatsoever. They even, like, put their hands on it and it's still cold. I must say I absolutely love Michael Drucker. He's a frequent collaborator with James Gunn. And the storyline that they give to Michael Rooker in Guardians of the Galaxy 2, oh, makes me cry. Um, but anyway, um, yeah, they're finding that they can't do anything with it um, at all. I love the bromance between the maintenance men as well, by the way. Yeah, it's very, like, father-son. Mm-hmm. Um, I wish, because this is quite a short film, like, I would love to have known why their relationships like that because like we get into this very quickly mm-hmm. um you know we have uh, like some establishing shots of who these people are and I guess for the most part we do understand who they are but I maybe would have loved to have known a little bit more about this relationship specifically especially since it ends so quickly um there's obviously like the other one I can't remember his character's name is dealing with some kind of issue because his anxiety threshold is met very quickly and he reacts in a kind of negative way very quickly and it's Michael Rooker's character who is the first one to die and it's a really again it's a sad scene because it they it feels like they have that father-son relationship and he's trying really hard to calm him down but it's just not working at all no, it's, it's it's so heartbreaking. They're so likeable as well. They were probably two of my favourite characters and the fact that one of them goes so quickly in such a brutal way, like you don't expect them to die the way they do. I really kind of gasped when it first happened. I was like, I was really shook. I thought yeah. somebody'd get shot. I didn't expect a fucking explosion. Yeah, like the first time I saw the film like just because it's Michael Rooker and he is like credited like quite high up in the film as well he's a very well-known face based on mm-hmm. Guardians of the Galaxy and Walking Dead and he was like one of the most recognizable faces to me anyway and they kill him like in the first I don't know like 20 minutes of the film like I was really surprised um slightly before that happens though um you know they've tried to like weld the use the welder thing to kind of burn a hole in the uh, metal it doesn't really work and Mike kind of has a brainwave that there's something to do with this thing that they've put in their head and that's why it's specifically these people who have been chosen so it's mentioned I can't remember when in the film but it's excuse me it's mentioned that none of the Colombian workers have these trackers. Yeah. So I think they kind of start to suspect that this whole thing has been done on purpose. You know, even when you break down why Belco is, like, what Belco does, it's like trying to facilitate American business in Colombia. It's like, what the fuck does that mean? Like, they start to question, like, has their whole purpose just to be part of some rich guy's game? So Mike tries to take his tracker out. Um, 
throughout this film is maybe like another slight down point in it Mike has so much plot armor yeah this scene in particular like there's not a chance in hell that Mike would be given 10 seconds this is the longest 10 countdown I've ever heard in my life and he's rooting around in there trying to pull out his tracker and then like at the last second the hands go up uh, and then everyone else is told, well, if you try that, then you're going to die. But Mike tries it and he's fine. He gets special uh, privileges, but also as well, like, even if you didn't die from that cut, which he he's not a medical professional, he could be going right to his bloody brain. Surely from the blood loss, I mean, he's running about, like, he's totally fine. He puts, like, bloody tissues on it for a bit and then he's all right. Like, yeah. it, it, it doesn't get mentioned again. And that is a nasty fucking cut in an injury. Exactly. I'm being a terrible horror podcaster and then I'm skipping ahead of stuff again. So what leads Mike <laughs> to realise that the tracker in their head is the explosive device is that because they didn't kill two people, the, the voice has mm-hmm. set off, has killed four people. And when Mike examines one of the corpses he realizes that it's come from the inside of their head this explosion has come from the inside of their heads they all think it's someone shooting but it's not um so mike then realizes about the tracker and tries to remove it so the voice comes back again and he's like right so now you just have to kill 30 people and if you don't kill 30 people i'm gonna kill 60 people and this really like sends the sh- like the scares up everybody and the group really split into two after this the people who are like well if we kill 30 that saves another 30 then we have this other group led by mike who is like do you really think this is going to stop here no like they're not going to let anybody live to tell the tale so we're in this company we're in this office Lucy it's already (laughs) full of fucking red flags and you're told 30 people have to die or 60 people will die whose side are you on it's really I mean just the whole atmosphere and the pressure you feel like you can feel like you could cut the tension with a knife in this bit and I love it but I'm in agreement with like Mike on this in the sense that they're not going to stop at this if they've already killed four people you know, who's to say if you kill 30 people that they're not going to kill the other 30? And like we said before, even if you survive at the end of this, the guilt you're going to feel for murdering a mass amount of people, people that you know, probably have known for a long time, you work with, you know they have families and lives and all this. Could you really live with that after? So I wouldn't be doing it. Exactly. And like the group who are like, we need to kill 30 people, try and use, like, a moral justification. Like, at one mm-hmm. point, they, like, very heavily persuade, I think it's Terry, to come to their side. And, he, like, Barry's like, are, are you a father? Because I am. And my wife and kids wouldn't really survive without me. And I bet yours can't either. So, like, are we going to go and kill some people? And it's really manipulative. And you see Terry kind of, he's just sniveling and crying the whole time because he's like, I want to get home to my wife and kids. But he knows what he's doing is wrong. 
and he knows deep down inside of him he knows what he's doing is wrong but he just like snivels and cries the whole time while like being on the bad guy's side and they're calling them the bad guys this is such an awful situation i don't really know if you can call them that it's like morally gray yeah very morally gray um so now, sorry, just to add there as well, like the way that they kind of try and justify whose lives are more important. I think um, the CEO also does at one point people have to like walk up if they have kids or yes. like this or that. And that's how they decide to kill people. And it's like, who's to say somebody that doesn't have a child, their life isn't as important or they have like people step up that are over 60 you know stuff like that but how how would you make that decision you know somebody else suggests like doing it in like a hat or like a game of fucking bingo like hunger games and put it to fate and he's not willing to do that but the way he's so quickly like okay this person's life is of more value because they conform to x y and z like we were talking about social conformity in american psycho and people having like the cookie cutter life that's quite interesting as well yeah, because he, I think he thinks he's taking like a moral stance by being like, oh, anyone who has kids under the age of 18. And then someone pipes up and they're like, well, I actually have caring, like, financial mm-hmm. responsibilities over my brother. And they were like, I think Wendell is like, did they come out your fucking sperm? And it's just like, well, it's not the fucking point, though. Like, people have caring responsibilities for other family members mm-hmm. as well. And it doesn't make them any less important. Um, we actually, through a work thing, actually, um, kind of had this conversation with my sister um, I had a briefment in July and I was able to take loads of time off work um, I was already on sick leave anyway but I would have been able to take loads of time off work anyway but then my sister kept getting told that she wasn't allowed to take any compassionate leave because it wasn't a close relative and it's like but we're not close with our parents and this is our last grandparent that we've got who basically raised us and she was told you're not allowed compassionate leave and luckily like her the person above her it was like the person above them that was like no you can't have any and the person above her was like no take all the time off you want I'm gonna make sure you get all the leaves that you need and if that person didn't stand up for that and say that was morally wrong then that wouldn't have happened but yeah in these corporate spaces being told what is and isn't like acceptable because you don't conform to that socially normal standard then you're not allowed something like compassionate leave and in this situation because this guy doesn't conform to the social norm of not having children then he's not allowed the exception and it's really fucked up it's so fucked up so fucked up anyway slightly before that scene um Mike's group decide that they're going to try and fly banners off the side of the building to try and get someone's attention. Um, where, where do they get this material from? Who has that massive banner in like the paint or the markers just in it, a corporate office? Yeah, like I, <laughs> one of my last jobs, I had a packet of highlighters. Someone gave them to me and I guarded those things so my life. I like, they are my <laughs> highlighters. If anyone tries to take them, I'm gonna let you know those belong to me. <laughs> I guarded <laughs> these things with my life, um, because you know what it's like in an office; shit goes missing all the fucking time. So everybody knew that those were my fucking highlighters. <laughs> they didn't go missing. 
I bloody do that with my milk in the office because I have my barista oatly oat milk. And if, you know, they've got all the other fucking milks they want, I can't have those. If you dare touch my oat milk, I'm coming for you. Say in my office, like, no, everyone just drinks their coffees and teas black so they don't have to bring milk at all. So I'm lucky that I bring my own milk in and it's fine. But it's those days when I forget and I'm like, oh, I can have like a little bit of dairy. And I'm like, fuck, no one else even has any milk for me to borrow. So I'm like, I just have to sit here caffeineless. <laughs> torture. <laughs> it is fucking torture. It is. I'm like, oh, I'm so tired. Just need my little caffeine fix. <laughs> I don't want to pay four seventy five for a large pumpkin spice latte again. <laughs> <laughs> worth it. It is worth it. Anyway, they try and like fly these banners, just basically saying we're being held hostage. We need help, and these new security guards shoot at them. So it's kind of confirmed at this point that they're in on it and there's no, there's kind of no way out at this point. Um, so this is when we get to the scene in the lobby where Barry is just like picking people and he's playing judge, jury and executioner. What do you think of Barry's decision to, because he's like, I, I'm the boss. These people need to die. I'm going to do it because I'm the boss. And I said, you know, with Wendell, he's like taking great pleasure in it. With Barry, he kind of he says he's doing it because he has responsibility over everybody. What do you think of his reasoning? I don't know because, like, at the start, you don't really get to know him much as a boss, so you don't know what his like management style is or the kind of person that he is. I feel like he's trying to maybe take a moral high ground in the sense that I did this awful thing, but I'm the leader, so nobody else can. So this make this kind of justifies my actions, but it really doesn't because I mean later on, you know, we see that he has this like idea of what is and isn't right, but he still kills people anyway. At the end of the day, he's still committing mass murder. Um, I don't really know how I feel, but I don't know. I don't really understand him because you don't really get to know him. Yeah. <clears throat> No, I agree. And like we were kind of saying with like the two maintenance men, like Michael Rooker goes quickly and then um, Danny kind of takes care of the other one quite quickly. So we're kind of lacking something in that relationship. And then we're lacking something in the relationship with Barry, with his employees. Like, are they close? Are they not? Is he like a boss type person or is he a leader? Because we all know from working different jobs that there are many different types of bosses. Mm-hmm. And it's like, is he a good boss or a bad boss? Like, we actually really don't know. Like, all we kind of get to know in terms of relationships between colleagues is that Wendell is a creep lusting after Mike's girlfriend. And Mike seems to be best friends with everyone in the building, which is really convenient for the plot. Um, and that's it, really. I do, like, I hate Wendell, but he is such an accurate depiction of that creepy guy in the office that thinks that, you know, if you dare looked at his way, then he, you're in love with him. Like, he's so disgusting and vile, but I feel like most people have experienced that in an office that they're presenting, or they have seen somebody like that in the office. Mm, definitely. So... Earlier on in the film, Barry has been trying to get access to the weapons that Evan, the head of security, has the key for. And he's like, I I really want access to the weapons for everyone's safety. And I feel like, I don't know if James Gunn was maybe making a commentary about 
you know this idea that politicians in America keep saying uh, the way to make schools safer against gun violence is to put more guns in them. Mm-hmm. And Barry's like, I need access to the weapons to make sure that they're safe. And Evan's like, no. Like, I'm the head of security. I know what I'm doing. Respectfully, fuck off. I'm keeping these keys. But it gets to a point where Wendell and Barry use excuse me, use the welding device from earlier on to try and gain access by force. Uh, And they eventually just in a tussle with Evan, take the keys from him and get access to the weapons. And I feel like this is when shit like really goes downhill. Yeah, I mean, they're in a a very like awful situation where people are panicked. They're not rationally thinking. Everybody's going this unhinged manic behavior. You don't want to add fuel to the fire and give them weapons. That's just going to make the killing process that much fucking quicker. And people are going to have, you know, there's obviously not everyone can have a weapon to protect themselves. So it's going to give others an unfair advantage. And of course, it's going to be a bloodbath after that. So like, when they get the keys, I feel like this is the first time that someone really purposefully kills somebody. So Wendell like stabs Evan in the stomach, which stabbing someone in the stomach is such a fucking bitch move as well because it's like a slow death mm-hmm. you know with Michael Rooker's character it was very much like a burst of emotions and then similarly when Danny kills the other maintenance worker it's fight or flight it was her or him and yeah but this he stabs Evan and takes those keys he's like fuck you I want in that armory and this is kind of like the first straight up murder that we get in the film so now with access to the armory and all the weapons, like Barry, Wendell, and their like group of little bitches <laughs> <laughs> um, have everybody in the lobby and they start to make these you know decisions about who lives or dies, like they're fucking god or something. Um, you know, and Barry very purposefully picks Mike because he's being very difficult mm-hmm. to him in the process. Um, Danny makes a reappearance and she's been hiding in the basement and when she sees what's going on she goes back downstairs and turns off all the power which is a great like move for Mike and Leandra his girlfriend because they get to live a little bit longer but what do you think of this in terms of like a survival strategy? I mean, I suppose when you're trying, it is fight or flight and you're going to make maybe not the most rational decisions. I don't know if I would have done it, but also I probably would have done what that what she did before and hide. I think if I was in this situation, I probably would have just hid for the entire time. I know, she's so petite as well. She hide, She finds this perfect spot and she just sits there. And like, it, it does make me wonder sometimes like, if Danny just stayed there the whole time. Mm-hmm. What would happen? Because obviously these overlords who are playing this game are really wanting it to get down to one. So what would have happened if it was just Danny? What would like what would have happened if it was just Danny and Mike in the end? Because Mike wouldn't have killed her. And I don't think she would have killed him either. That's very true. And because she's so petite, she could have hidden anywhere. I mean, even where she was, I don't think anybody would have found her, to be honest. No, the only person would have known who would have known that she was still alive would have been like the game overlords but it's even that way as well like I don't know if they had cameras in the basement 
you know, how they start like picking apart the cameras and stuff. Like, I'm not sure if they would have known because, you know, because what happens at the end of the film, Mike just starts flicking switches willy nilly and it like the explosions go off. Wouldn't they have actually known she was still there? That's true because you wouldn't think to put cameras there. No, especially when it just seems to be Michael Drucker and his companion who's down there just tinkering with stuff, doing what maintenance people do. But anyway. <laughs> um, Danny shuts off the lights and as soon as that happens, like, everybody scatters like cockroaches. They're like, I'm getting the fuck out of here. And I don't bloody blame them. Um, and Barry and his group just start firing willy-nilly um, in the dark. Which is quite scary as well, because they could kill some of their group. Like, obviously, they kind of want to keep their group. Yeah, it, you know what it reminds me of as well is in 28 weeks later, when they're in the underground, like, it, I think it is like the underground, like the tube station, but and it's all dark, and then somebody's infected, and everybody gets infected, and you don't know who's who, and it's just a bloodbath massacre, and you can't see anything. Reminds me of that, because anybody could die. Like, you know, losing your sight, all your other senses are heightened as well. It's a very anxious situation. It reminds me of that scene in 28 Weeks Later where things can go wrong very quickly and there can be a lot of deaths within like a couple minutes. Yeah, definitely. So, yeah, two of like Barry's group who are like terrorizing these people are ganged up on by the employees and they kill them. Like, I'm sure one of them just literally just gets kicked to death. And I'm like, good terrorizing these people you deserve it and then um, Danny ends up finding Roberto someone that she was bonding with slightly earlier and um they hide in an elevator shaft and um, so just before the two hours runs out uh, Leandra finds herself in a room with Terry and she's trying to hide she's trying to take the like the knife like the sharp part of the guillotine the paper mm-hmm. guillotine off and she tried to do this very quietly and um she manages to hit Terry on the leg with it and he's like lying like he's lying there with his like injuries and he's crying and at this point the voice says that only 29 people have been killed and you need to kill one more person and think they have two minutes or something to do it and she has a chance to kill him and she doesn't. Um, what do you think of Leandra's decision? I mean, it's difficult because he's already suffering. So it's like if this person's injured, finish the job. But then, like, I don't, morally, I don't think I could do it. So I understand where she's coming from. I mean, the smart move would have been to do it there and then. But also, we've said already, who's to say they're not going to stop at 30? So I understand why she doesn't do it. Like, I don't think you know what you would do in that situation until you're actually put in it. Yeah, it's so easy to be like, oh, just do it. Um, But, you know, when it comes time to it, can you really do it? And for Leandra right there and then, for Terry, it's a no. Like, Terry is friends with her boyfriend. He's never really done anything to her. And when you see someone, like, crying and sniffling like that, like, he's obviously terrified. And you know, he's done things that are wrong in this process, but, you know, he's been scared for his kids, he's been scared for his wife, and, like, 
you understand that as the audience and I think she understands that as well so that's why she kind of balls it and doesn't do it but the irony is when the timer goes out his explosive goes off so whether she did it or didn't do it it doesn't fucking matter because he dies anyway which is you know very sad and nihilistic almost um so the overlords kill 31 people as per what they said they were going to do they wanted 60 people dead uh, they wanted 30 people dead, didn't get it, so 60 have died now, and there are only 16 people left. So at this point, the the overlords have said, as the final task, the person with the most kills becomes the winner. And this is when people who like haven't really killed anybody at all are like, shit, I want to live, so I'm going to have to participate in this now. Um, what do you what do you think about the final task? I would be fucking raging because again, it just goes to show that it doesn't matter if you try to take the moral high ground anyway, because you're all going to end up dead anyway. So, I mean, it, honestly, at that point, it sounds pretty morbid. I probably would have just taken myself out because I'm going to die anyway. Yes. Um. Yeah. Exactly. So we're kind of given like a breakdown of who has killed how many people and Barry's at the top obviously because he was taking the moral high ground before and he wanted to play judge jury and executioner um, and next is Wendell um, and there's a few other people who can't remember their names and <laughs> it's funny when they get to Danny obviously Danny killed someone it was her or him they had mm-hmm. to go and her friend is like cuddling her and then her name's mentioned and he's just like <laughs> no. <laughs> um, Barry finds Danny and Roberto in the elevator shaft. Well, he doesn't really find them. I think he suspects that someone's there, and um, they're trying to come up with a plan to protect themselves. But at this like crucial moment, when the overlords have said you need to have the biggest body count to be the winner. Barry ends up trapped in the elevator and Roberto is crushed to death, which I was a bit gutted. I did like his character, but I kind of love this thing of like our front runner being trapped. And it's like, well, you might end up losing now. True. And it is a very brutal death. I mean, all the deaths in this are brutal, like the stomping one, you saw the brains coming out, like. They're all vicious, but I really like this death because, I mean, I don't like elevators and lifts anyway. This creeps me out, and it's 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 like a creative death. Like, at least he goes out in, like, a unique way, but I am good for him. So, two of our people that we've not really spoken about yet, Marty and Chet, they are our stoner characters that we see at the beginning of the film, one of them played by Sean Gunn, and he's very much, like, the comedic element of the film um, his wild stoner theories are kind of the levity uh, throughout the film I would have gone fucking crazy if he destroyed the water fountain on my floor because it's that way you don't know how long this is going to last for I'm like I don't want to I don't want to be killed by Wendell and his fucking axe and I also don't want to be dehydrated to death either so <laughs> can't you stop Exactly. Like I, I do kind of, I do kind of love him because I love 
the st- I love stoners. I love the stoner energy of these characters. And like at the start as well, you know, when they're on the rooftop, like sharing a sharing a joint, and like he's just so blase and casual about it. I kind of love him. But you are right though, because I mean, one of the worst ways to go is dying of thirst. And we don't know how long they're gonna be there for. And I think it's like three days you can go without water and yeah. you die. So it's doesn't take long and there's a lot of people there so that war is gonna go quick exactly but they leandra finds them going around the dead bodies and collecting the explosives from their brains and at this point they're like we're gonna use them to blow a hole in the wall um which i guess in theory is a good idea but we don't know how these are activated so they're just collecting them from for the moment and who knows if, like, you know, if the, the overlord people notice this, who's not to say they're going to explode them all at once and then it's a massive explosion that kills everybody because it's all these, like, bullets all contained in one. I know, they're just, like, carrying them in a tissue in his pocket and it's just like, you could just, like, blow yourself in half. Exactly. <laughs> so, um... Unfortunately, don't get very far, though, because Wendell kills them, and then Leandra and Wendell are in a room together. I feel like anybody who's had to deal with workplace harassment or a workplace bully would find the scene between Leandra and Wendell very cathartic. He had it coming for so fucking long, like... Oh, and it's just the way he's like, I I see the way you look at me and everything like that. And just like totally ignoring her relationship that she has. And he's just like, every time they had an interaction, I really thought it was going to turn sinister. And I didn't know if that film was going to take it that way in terms of like having like a assault scene or something. But like, oh, this is so satisfying because you either know somebody that's been through this or you've experienced it yourself. There's always that one person in the office that's just so creepy and borders on fucking sexual harassment. Yeah, like the way at the start of the film, he's just staring at her and it's so fucking creepy. And then, like you said, they have the exchange where he's like, you know what you're doing when you look at me like that. And she's thinking, look at you like fucking wet. Like And he says like flirty me- oh all the flirty messages. She doesn't fucking flirt with him. This man is beyond delusional. Yeah, I mean she's literally like she's literally sending him like a, a message at the start of the film telling him to fuck off and stop looking at her. But that's what gets his more running apparently. exactly so after Leandra just absolutely caves in Wendell's face with this axe chef's kiss (laughs) there are only six people left so these this includes Vince, Mike, Barry, Danny, Leandra and a wee dinner lady called Liesl um, who's killed quite quickly afterwards so um, Danny breaks my bloody heart, her death scene, and she spent this whole film hiding, and then the elevator just dings open, and Barry just fucking shoots her between the eyes. I'm like, I absolutely died for you, babes. Like, it's your first day, you know, and that's anxiety-inducing enough when you've had to deal with all this shit. Exactly. Um, there is... 
a shootout and Barry shoots Vince, but he also shoots Leandra in the process as well. Leandra and Mike take themselves away, like trying to hide. And then this is when they notice that she's been shot too. And, you know, she tells them that she loves them and then she passes away. And it's, you know, it's really sad. I was really gutted. I was really hoping that she would make it to the end, like the two of them would be together or she would be the final girl and Mike would die. But then again, I mean, he's been given so much, like you say, plot armour and he's really the character who's had the most development. It probably isn't going to happen, but the way she just like starts spitting out blood and you're like, oh, no. You just know what's coming. Yeah, it's so sad. So we're left with two people at this point. So we have Barry, who has killed the most people, and we have Mike, who's killed no one. Um, He's really kind of held his ground throughout this whole thing. He's kind of gone out of his way to help people a lot of the time. But, you know, the people in charge of this game have other ideas. Um, So Mike has this fight with Barry. It is fucking brutal and then Mike grabs the closest thing to him which is a sellotape dispenser and bashes his bloody face in and I feel like at this point like Mike's been on this like no violence kind of thing throughout this I feel like this is the frustration like he's just watched his girlfriend die he's watched all of his friends die like his work friends die and he is fucking pissed off with whoever has done this. And I feel like this carries on to the next scene as well. What do you think of Mike winning the game, essentially? This is probably, like, my favourite scene because it goes on for quite a while. The way it's shot as well, where it's got, like, the corporate, like, lights in the background. It's quite dark setting. And they have, like, really cheesy corporate America, like, welcome to Belco Corporation. You hear that in the background. I just love the power struggle they have and then the way like he's holding up this fucking sellotape thing is almost like Leatherface in Texas Chainsaw mm. Massacre. Like this shot of that is quite similar. And you're so right. He's been through so much. He's tried to take this moral high ground. This is the whole frustration of everything that he's been through. He's taking it out on Barry. And you know what? He fucking deserves it. And it's so brutal and like kind of inventive. Like, of all the things you could kill somebody with <laughs> and you're in an office, fucking... I mean, they can be quite heavy, though. Oh, like... they are. They're <laughs> bloody savage. So, um, you know, once Barry is dead, the building is unsealed. The soldiers come in and escort Mike out of the building and then he meets the voice. Um, and he explains to Mike that Belco is actually an international organization that studies human behavior. So obviously, as a result of experiments that have happened in the past, there are a lot of rules regarding how you can experiment on humans. But Belco is all about subverting those rules to try and truly study human behavior you know there's lots of well-known experiments like stanford prison experiment um you know little albert um you know the way they've tested like medical conditions like there was a thing for like 40 years in america where they just injected black people for with syphilis and they were like oh it's like yeah like purposefully 
doing that to people given their syphilis. Um, so there's loads of examples throughout the 20th century of people doing very questionable things to other people um, in the name of science. And this is what the voice is saying about this. This is like a sociological experiment to see what people will do in this situation. What do you think about this explanation for this? It's really interesting. Like one one of the things that I have a bit of a break with this film is I wish we knew a bit more about them because all we hear is it's an international organization. That's all we find out about at the end of the I wish we knew a little bit more about them. I know it's supposed to be mysterious, but I feel like we could have gotten a bit more backstory or at this point had like a confessional kind of thing, like a proper one. It's really interesting because, like you said we have a fascination with the human mind and like how far people will go but it's like when is thing when are things in the name of science when is it for sadistic purposes and this is clearly for sadistic purposes you know you never should put through somebody through this um but at the same time you could kind of see this happening maybe not to this scale but like you said if people are going to be that vile and disgusting to inject black people with syphilis Who's to say they wouldn't do this, you know? And especially with a rich organization that can kind of get away with stuff like this. Who's to say it wouldn't happen? Yeah, it's like with Hostel that we did, I think it was like her second episode, and Eli Roth had kind of heard that people do pay other people to kill people. And it's just like that like probably actually does happen. Like there probably will be people trafficked for that sort of thing. It's bloody horrible, but people with a lot of money, people with some really fucked up interests, you know, they want to satisfy them. And I think that's what a lot of this is about because we don't really know what it is they're actually looking at. Like, what is it you want to know about these people that you had to gather eight of them in a building and kill 79 of them to find out? Like, what were the findings? Are you fucking satisfied? <laughs> and it's also the question they ask. It's, it's almost like that. It reminds me of those like basic psychology questions of look at this blotting art thing. How do you feel? It's like, how do you feel right now? Sad? Yeah. Confused? Yeah. These are the four emotions. Which one of them do you feel? And I'm, I'm, I'm like, I feel like fuck off. Like I want it. <laughs> I want to get out of here. I want to go to bed. I need a shower. And then I would like five years of therapy, please. Like oh, oh, do you feel sad? Like I just watched his girlfriend die. Of course he does. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so Mike is fucking not having any of this he grabs one of the guns from the soldiers uh, kills the scientists he has these bombs that Shogun's character were collecting, was collecting earlier he's dropped them into people's pockets which I feel like you watch that scene and you're like he's not fucking doing that and then they do the close ups and it's like oh you must have been all sneaky and put them in I'm like he wasn't fucking doing that don't take the piss out of me we ain't stupid and um, you know he shoots the like the game overlord shoots him in the head. I'm like quite right. Like who does he? Who do these people think they are that they think they can do this? And then they, he sets off the bombs, and he walks out. But then at the end of the film, um, you know we're zooming out, and we're seeing all these other images of people. You know, there's this one man who's screaming into the camera and I can't take my eyes off him. He's covered in blood and he's just like, ah! 
Um, yeah, like, it's so good. It's so good. And then we're zooming out and it says end stage one, commence stage two. And I am not a sequel person, but I've never wanted a bloody sequel more in my life. Because like you say, I want more. I want to know more about Belco. But James Gunn is like, no plans. That's so frustrating because like you could do a whole spin-off of this, like like the Purge has, you know, about this yeah. international organization. But I think they said that Belco is in like 40 different countries or something like yeah. that. So you could have a spin-off in so many different areas, but they've not done it. Um I do feel like sometimes there is a bit of a not like a fear, but I feel like I don't know if you've seen Escape Room. But it's kind of a similar process to get these people together in escape room, and obviously it's a lot more deadly because it's a horror film. And then they put out a sequel to it the very next year, and it was to like expand on the lore. But I don't think it it wasn't giving as much as the first one. I really love Escape Room, but Escape Room Champion of Champions is not as good. I, mm-hmm. I don't know if it's just because like you know the premise, but they do try to expand on the lore and stuff a little bit but I don't know it's just not giving so I don't know if James Gunn is just like you know what I'm really happy with this I'm just gonna leave it then again I don't know (laughs) I'm just fucking rambling at this point Uh, you don't want to ruin a good thing but at the same time how many shitty horror films have had shitty sequels so exactly so that's like that's the end of the film like how did you feel at the end of it I mean, even though, like, there is some weak plot points and um, it is a very short film, I think it's, like, 120 or something like that. Yeah. I still really like it. Like, it's a fun slasher. Definitely. I really enjoyed it. Um, And it's something, when we get into box office and ratings, I really, really enjoyed this film. Like, we have kind of spoke about some of its shortcomings, but it didn't review well. At oh. all. And like I said, I never saw any advertising or anything for this before I went to see it. But then I remembered the view- reviews coming in and everyone was saying it was a bit shit. And I'm like, what? And I'm like, I think it's good. You think it's good. <laughs> we mentioned to Belle last week that we were watching it. They thought it was good. Um, Blaine on Twitter earlier today was just like, oh, two fun films, can't wait. So she must think it's good. And I'm like, <laughs> Well, we can't all be wrong. <laughs> <laughs> Why can't it be? I wonder who these critics just, like, again, they don't like horror. Maybe they just don't get it or I, I don't know. Exactly. Um. So my kind of like one little bit of trivia about this is that James Gunn actually conceived this script in 2007. So like 10 years before it came out, there was plans for the film to be made at that time but James Gunn was going through some personal stuff and was just like do you know what I really don't want to make a film about people killing their friends and family when I'm kind of having a shit time right now so it just kind of put it on the back burner for a little bit and then the production company came back to him like around the time that it came out and was like hey like we've still never done anything with this script that we really like do you want to like, make it and he was like yeah I can't direct it because he was making guardians of the galaxy at the time but super keen to do it so he came on as a producer and he got like a lot of creative control over the film as well so that's how it ended up coming to be in 2016 oh so it was a long time in the making 
definitely but that is something as well like he's like I'm not in the right headspace for this so he waited and I think that's like a good message for people yeah exactly don't rush something if you're not in the right headspace if you know you know you need to work on your own well-being so um let's get into box office ratings then so like I just kind of mentioned this film didn't review very well and it also didn't gross a lot of money either which is maybe why a sequel has not come either so this was made on a five to six million dollar budget and it only grossed 11 so in terms of making money back I know it's like double but you want a lot more than that and I think because this film did not bring in maybe what they were expecting it to bring in I was um that the sequel's not happened. I read that this came out the same weekend as the live Beauty and the Beast remake, but very different audiences. Uh, very true. <laughs> uh, they were really expecting this to pull in about four million on opening weekend, and that didn't happen. So um, I don't know if it was like a lack of advertising. You know, it's also an 18, which kind of reduces how many people can come. I don't know, but it's very it's very disappointing because I think the film is better than what it's received. Yeah, and especially because it had a cinema release as well. It wasn't yeah. just like a festival route or a streaming. I, I wonder how it would have done if it was like now, but mm. you know, if it was like a Netflix original or something like that, if it would have maybe even grossed more if it was like on a streaming. I don't know, but yeah, that is disappointing. So in terms of ratings, this has a 6.1 out of 10 on IMDb, uh, 55% on Rotten Tomatoes critics, a 40% from the audience, and a 44% from Metacritic. So like I say, it's not very well reviewed at all. No, it's not. That's pre- I mean, the 40s, that's pretty harsh. I think so as well. But critics, full ship. <laughs> Lucy, what do you rate Belko Experiment out of 10? Well, I feel like I, because I give American Psycho 8, I can't give this an 8 because it's definitely not as good as American Psycho. But you know what? I really enjoyed this film. Like, I I think this is a great film for a spooky sleepover. It's a really good slasher that's got something a bit different about it. I'll definitely watch it again. And yeah, okay, there's some like weak plot points and like there's some things you're like, ah, that wouldn't fucking happen. But it's not to the point where you don't enjoy it. It doesn't take you out of it. So for that, I'm gonna give it I'm gonna give it a seven and a half out of ten. I really liked it. Yeah, I think I'm along a similar vein. Um probably give it an eight. Like it is really fun. I know it has its bad points. I was thinking of seven, but I'm just like, no, like I have a really good time with this film. So I think an eight is good for it. Um and I think as well in terms of it, like if you're having a bad day at work <laughs> and you want to watch something. Like, I feel like this is very cathartic. You're just like, yeah, I'm going to kill the fucking shit out of my boss because they're pissing me off today. You know, that person who wrote regards, you rude little bitch. <laughs> X to the face. <laughs> yeah, definitely felt better after watching it. <laughs> definitely. Um, so that's the end of our spooky sleepover. Um, yes. Phil, I feel like we've been recording for quite a long time, but we have taken quite a few breaks, so <laughs> maybe it's not quite as long as what we think it is. But um, I hope you've enjoyed this episode. Um, 
for the rest of the year we'll have one more spooky sleepover films for my birthday in December but other than that the rest of the year we are going to be fully focused on Dragula uh, which I'm so excited about I've been like anticipating this moment I think since the beginning of August I'm like oh Dragula's coming back Uh, so I'm really excited for that Uh, Sophie is going to be back Sophie from Sophie Serves face is going to be back joining us every single week for our regular reviews and um, before the series starts in October on October 25th we are going to do a meet the titans episode I can imagine a lot of people would have been come on to Dracula based on season four uh, season four was massively successful maybe you've not got around to the other ones yet maybe you're looking at the titans and being like Lindsay, Lucy, I don't know who these people are. Don't worry, we've got you covered. We'll give you the scoop on all the monsters so that you're fully prepared to watch Dracula Titans. So excited for it. Like, this is a moment we've been waiting for. We knew it was coming. And, like, you know, we have Dracula to thank for a lot of new people that came and listened to the podcast. You know, yes. the Boulays gave us a massive shout out last year on their podcast, um, which still bewilders me to this day you know we've had dms with them they bloody shouted us out on stage at the dragula live so um i'm just really excited for people to come back to listen to this and you know drag and horror is something we're both so passionate about so to come back and also have like fan favorites come back as well and for more people to discover drag and inclusive drag you know, that's what Dragula's about. We've had a winner that's a drag king. We've had non-binary performers. We've had, you know, a lot of topics about racism and a lot of social commentary. We had, you know, Hoso Teratoma on last year who's non-binary. also spoke about their experience of dealing with cancer and all these different things that you would not get on other shows. Cough, cough, RuPaul's Drag Race. Um, so, yeah. That's the thing, like, with Dracula, a, a cis male has never won. Yes, exactly. Um, the Phantom on Odd is trans femme, uh, bitch pudding is non-binary, Landon Cider, as far as I'm aware, is like a woman, mm-hmm. and Delhi is non-binary. And it's just like, you can't say the same about other drag competitions. Um, you can't say that other drag competitions would let all of those people in. Um, so it's super duper refreshing. And yeah, I just can't wait to get into it again. I just, I love it so much. And I just feel like I'm going to be insufferable for the next 10 weeks. <laughs> so yeah, join us next week to get to know our returning monsters a little bit better, see what their stats are, like what we're expecting of them from the competition. And uh, yeah, and, and Sophie will be with us again. I'm really looking forward to recording with Sophie again. She's always a good time. So yeah, definitely be on the lookout for that. Um, Lucy, where can people find you online? You can find me at Lulu underscore Pew on all socials for all like my writing. Hopefully by the time this comes out, my first editorial for Ghouls Magazine will be out as well, talking all things about sapphic vampires. Um, also by the time this comes out, I think, or it will be very soon after, um, the ebook version of Hero Scream Volume 2 will be out print will be coming soon as well but if you guys are interested in horror 
you know, here's screen, I'm a writer for the, like for the website as well. I do editorial, but the book volume one and two has so many amazing writers from the horror community compu- uh, contributing various different essays on a variety of different things about horror. So please go check it out. Um, you know, the essays are wonderful. Go give support. And yeah, I'm just really thankful to be part of that project and to have made loads of friends and all that. So yeah, if you want to hear it or see, read any of that, it's Lulu underscore Pew. I am at Hi, it's Lindsay underscore on all social media. You can find the podcast on Twitter at Girlfriend Pod and on Instagram at Girlfriends underscore podcast. We'll be back next week with our Meet the Titans episode. But until then, stay spooky.